Hi, I'm Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so hard to keep up with the latest scientific research on child development and figure out whether and how to incorporate it into our own approach to parenting. Here at Your Parenting Mojo, I do the work for you by critically examining strategies and tools related to parenting and child development that are grounded in scientific research and principles of respectful parenting. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free guide to seven parenting myths that we can safely leave behind, seven fewer things to worry about, subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com. You can also continue the conversation about the show with other listeners in the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. I do hope you'll join us. Welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Today, we're going to look at a topic that bubbles up fairly often in online parenting groups, and that's related to perfectionism. The typical post goes something like this. My child starts an activity, but as soon as something doesn't go exactly the way they hoped, maybe a crayon wasn't the color they wanted, or they extended a mark too far on the paper, or they got an answer wrong on a quiz for school, they screw up the paper in a ball and throw it away. And when this happens on a regular basis, it just seems debilitating. How can I help my child to overcome this now while they're still young so it doesn't have a big impact on their life? And I was actually in the library a while ago looking for books on another topic for another podcast episode. And right next to the one I was there to get was an edited volume on perfectionism. And inside was an essay by our guest today, Dr. Paul Hewitt. And when I read that essay and I delved into his body of work, I knew he was exactly the right guest to speak with us. Dr. Hewitt works mostly with adults, but just as we learned when we covered anxiety a few months ago, it can be really difficult to find someone to interview who doesn't just focus on treating the symptoms of the problem and instead goes beneath the symptoms to understand the real causes, which is what Dr. Hewitt's work does so effectively. Dr. Hewitt is a professor of psychology and a registered clinical psychologist who has conducted extensive research on the construct of perfectionism, which is the idea of what perfectionism actually is and whether it's harmful to people. He's currently doing research on the treatment of perfectionism and trains clinicians in the treatments of perfectionistic behavior. Dr. Hewitt received his BA from the University of Manitoba, his MA and his PhD from the University of Saskatchewan, and he currently leads the Perfectionism and Psychopathology Lab at the University of British Columbia. In 2019, Dr. Hewitt received the Donald O. Hebb Award for Distinguished Contributions to Psychology as a Science for his work on perfectionism. Welcome, Dr. Hewitt. Oh, thank you very much. All right. So <laughs> let's start with definitions because it seems as though this should be kind of an easy thing to do, right? To define what perfectionism is. But the more you start poking at it, the more you realize it's a pretty nebulous concept. So can you please tell us how you define perfectionism? You're right. It, on first blush, it feels like something that should be fairly straightforward. And indeed, a lot of people in the literature treat it as something that's very simple, straightforward cognitions or thoughts or attitudes. In reality, I've spent about 35 years doing research and clinical work with people with problems with perfectionism, and my definition has evolved over the decades. At this point, I really think of perfectionism as a really complex, sort of multi-dimensional, multi-layered personality style. So it's like a character style that people have that really serves a fundamental purpose for individuals. 
So it's, again, it's an ingrained, stable kind of personality style that people have. So that's very general, you know, we've gotten, <laughs> we've gotten very specific in terms of what that might entail. And maybe I can work my way through that. A that would be great. Thank you. <laughs> um, one of the ways to think about perfectionism is that people, children, adults, adolescents, seniors will have a requirement of perfection. That is, some will need themselves, they'll require themselves to be perfect, or they will require other people to be perfect, or both. And when we talk about what we've talked about, the need to be perfect, we talk really about perfectionism traits. Actually, before I go any further, let me, let me state this. The conceptualization that I've put together with my colleagues over the years has not come just from research or from reading in the literature, it's come from working with patients. And it's come from working with people. And my patients over the years have taught me what perfectionism is. So this whole aspect of my work has really fueled everything that I do, from the models we've created to the treatment that we've developed to the understandings. So we can go back to this need to be perfect. Uh, we talk about perfectionism traits, and traits are personality characteristics that we have that are stable, they're long-standing, they've been there for a long time, often most of our lives. They don't change very easily. And we've talked about perfectionism traits. And these traits, these perfectionism traits, drive and energize perfectionistic behavior. So it's these traits that drive first off the need to be perfect. And there's three ways that we've talked about people needing to be perfect. The first, we've just called self-oriented perfectionism, meaning I need me to be perfect. I have the requirement that I have to attain perfection. And so that's one element. It's kind of what everybody thinks about when we talk about perfectionism. There's another element whereby individuals don't, I don't necessarily need me to be perfect. I need you to be perfect or my children or the other drivers on the road or my wife or my students or the world in general. I need everybody else to be perfect and I will be harsh and critical of those people when they're not perfect. In the same way that when I have requirement for myself to be perfect, I will be harsh and critical of myself. There's a third element, and this one really came from my clinical work, where it became clear that there were people who needed to be perfect, but it wasn't arising from themselves. It wasn't this intrinsic kind of need. It was more that other people require me to be perfect. And it's the perception that other people require me to be perfect. Now that can be absolutely true, or it can simply be a, a perception that's not objectively accurate. But nevertheless, the person has that experience of their world where I am expected to be perfect. And that can come, again, from spouses, from your boss, from the world in general, where a person feels like, the expectation by others is that I need to be perfect. And those are the traits, and they kind of drive all of this need to be perfect. So that's one element of perfectionism. Another one that came out of my clinical work was not the need to be perfect, 
like the need to communicate to the world that I am perfect. So you may know people that you would describe, yeah, that person needs to be perfect. I can see them being really concerned with being perfect or maybe even striving or driving to be perfect. And then there are these other people who don't necessarily strive and drive or are even concerned about striving. They are more concerned with communicating to everybody that I am perfect. There are certain politicians that exist in the world for whom that rings very, very true. So there's three ways that I can essentially appear perfect to you. One is I can communicate to you how perfect I am. I'll tell you all kinds of things that I do. I might even show you something that I do incredibly well. I will promote myself as perfect in with the goal that you will then see me somehow as perfect. Another way to do that, and that's by me kind of doing the opposite, is I will conceal things from people. I will not show you any behavior that I exhibit that might be imperfect. So I might have a concern with, you'll never see me public speak, for example, because if I speak publicly, I might falter, and you will then see an imperfection in me. And that is very aversive. So there's that element. There's also, and this is a particularly pernicious one, where I will not disclose or verbally reveal imperfections. And if you think about the establishment of intimate relationships, it's all about this process of more and more kind of revealing truly who we are uh, as people. Perfections, imperfect, everything. So <laughs> you can see that there's a whole domain of revealing of the self that would, uh, that this kind of perfectionism would really interfere. So, yeah. so there's that uh, domain. You can start to see that we're talking about a complex personality style mm-hmm. here. And that is in the interpersonal domain. That's about how the perfectionism is expressed interpersonally. The third element that we focused on is more intrapersonally, that is within the individual. And the way I like to frame it is when we're talking about needing to appear perfect to others, that is about the relationship one has with other people. The intrapersonal is about the relationship one has with oneself. And One of the ways best to capture that is we all have this internal dialogue that we have going on, not necessarily constantly, but a lot of the day. So prior to this podcast, as I was getting ready, you know, I'm quiet. So my wife is there. She just sees me kind of doing whatever. But in my head, I'm doing, okay, well, I've got 15 minutes. I got to make sure that I do this and I got to, you know, do that sort of thing and make sure my headphones are on. And it's just, simple dialogue that I have with myself. Often it's just something like that, but sometimes it can be a dialogue that really reflects how the the relationship I have with myself. So I could be, uh, these self-statements, things I say to myself, oh, I've got a task, I've got to do this perfectly, I've got to make sure I don't come across as silly or stupid or flawed or defective or in any way like Mm -hmm. that, and it's this dialogue. And if you think about that, if you had a partner that you were doing this podcast with, 
and you said those words to your partner, okay, you got to do this perfectly, you got to make it, it would cause real problems, and you probably wouldn't have a partner for very long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very hostile and aggressive. And yet, yeah. so if we think of that, the way we're interacting with ourselves, it's a very hostile and aggressive way of interacting with ourselves. We can also do things like after the podcast is say, oh, how could I be so stupid? I can't believe I said that. There are all these errors. I'm just horrible. I should quit this. I'll never succeed. And these self-recriminations, a self-critical element, also, if you said that to a partner, it would, would be very abusive. And so we can have this abusive relationship. We can also have a soothing, self-congratulatory relationship with self. But for perfectionism, this relationship with self tends to be perfectionistic, as I said, I got to do this perfectly, but also very harsh and critical. So we've got these three domains, three layers of perfectionism and perfectionistic behavior. And again, this is this is the, the, the truth is we're very complex creatures uh, and it's great to try to have simple models but when the models sort of eliminate the humanness of people in all of their complexity it's really not much help to us at all that's what we call our a, a descriptive model of perfectionism that's how the group that i work with that's how we see perfectionism okay um, so yes, it's and broad. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's big and it's complicated. And so this is really driven, I mean, the vast majority of your academic career, right? I mean, why is it so important to understand so much about perfectionism? One, because as soon as people kind of hear about it, it very often resonates with them. They say, oh, I understand that. Oh, I can relate to that. Or I don't know how many thousands of times I've given a talk, both professionally and to the public, and people come up afterward all the time. And they're often moved simply because I've described something that mm. resonates. Finally, somebody understands me. <laughs> that, or now I understand my beloved aunt or my mm -hmm. beloved father or grandparent mm -hmm. or my sibling or my child. And so it really kind of resonates with people first off. But also it's important because when I first started this work, I was actually an undergraduate, third year undergraduate. And I discovered that people kind of written a little bit about it. nobody done any research. And there were these implications, oh, it might be associated with depression and anxiety and eating disorders and this, that, and the other thing. But nobody had checked it out. So I did some initial work and developed ways to kind of do some research and then began a process of finding out what not only perfectionism was, but all these different components that we've talked about, that what are they related to? And we just find again that it's related to all kinds of different problems and problems in things that we might call psychological or psychiatric diagnoses, very significant relationship problems, very significant achievement problems, and very significant physical health problems, including a study that was done by a colleague of mine here in Canada on early death, that perfectionism is associated with, you know, when you control some of the other death factors, it's predictive of earlier deaths. So 
it's important because it it's really associated with all kinds of difficulties for people. Mm-hmm. Now, there's lots of reasons, theories we have as to why that why that might be and how that works and that sort of thing. So a big part of my research and many others across the world has been to try to figure out what are the problems with this personality style and then how does it work? And then ultimately, how do we help people with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it's associated with a lot of negative things, but one idea that I've seen both in the literature and that I think parents have heard of as well is this idea of positive perfectionism. And the first reference that I was able to find on it was back in 1978. And I kind of traced it through the literature a little bit and uh, found a definition in a paper from 1988 where the authors describe positive perfectionism, I'm going to quote, as cognitions and behaviors that are directed toward the achievement of certain high level goals to obtain positive consequences. That is, positive perfectionism is driven by positive reinforcement and a desire for success. And they actually describe developing a positive and negative perfectionism scale that drew heavily on a model that you had developed. <laughs> and so I'm wondering, can you talk us through your ideas about whether this idea of positive perfectionism exists? Oh, no, it doesn't. From <laughs> <laughs> my perspective, there's nothing positive about perfectionism. And there, in, within the, the field of perfectionism research, there's somewhat of a controversy, although it's becoming less and less of a controversy as we actually understand it more. The truth of it is perfectionism is about perfecting the self. We don't define it as perfecting things, like to make sure everything on my desk is perfectly aligned. That's something entirely, that's obsessionalism or compulsive behavior. Perfection is about having a sense of being defective, flawed, not good enough, there's something wrong with me, and I don't fit, I don't, I'm not accepted, people don't care for me, I get rejected, I'm abandoned, and so forth. And so the perfectionism, the need to perfect the self, is in service of trying to repair, repair a defective self and to find a place to feel accepted, to find love, respect, whatever interpersonal needs the person has. When the behavior is driven by that, there's very little that's positive that comes from it. When you dig into what people call adaptive perfectionism or positive perfectionism, what you'll discover is people will have, for example, measures of it, and the word perfection will never show up. It will be, do you have high standards? Uh, Do you expect things, expect positive things? Do you try to attain really difficult goals? And I'm, from my perspective, that's wonderful. That's really important. That's really healthy. Really difficult, can be problematic, but it's a very healthy kind of thing. That's what we would call There's been research on this domain for a hundred years. Originally, it was called level of aspiration work. Then it was need for achievement. Now it's mastery striving. And it's a very positive, conscientious-like approach to having high standards, to trying to achieve, to trying to do good things. Colloquially, or just in general, some people will call that perfectionism. But when we get into the world of science, we have to be quite a bit more precise 
And no, we can't call it perfectionism. It, it has little to do with what we're trying to kind of capture with perfectionism. Okay. There would be. That's super helpful. There would be, <laughs> so that they're measuring something and oh, they're absolutely. measuring something that's useful and interesting, but that it's not perfectionism is basically the way of thinking about uh, it. Yeah, that's the way we do it. That's the way many people okay. think about it. Is that, but there are people who would disagree with that. Okay. I'm happy to debate them. <laughs> so as we start to think about our children, because yes. obviously that's the of our show here, what are some of the ways perfectionism shows up in children? Well, we've in all the research we've done, we've focused mainly on adults. And my clinical work has all been with adults. Mm-hmm. We're just beginning to move into doing work with children. But it absolutely is the case that perfectionism is evident in children and adolescents. In some ways, it's similar to the kind of perfectionism that we see in adults, although we haven't done a whole lot of work on, on really trying to get what it's like phenomenologically for these kids. It can be identified when you do research with the measures we've created and other people have created. You find same kinds of things, uh, depression, suicide ideation, anxiety, eating problems, relationship problems, achievement, a whole host of difficulties that are there for children at this point, probably as young as seven, eight. Uh, that there's the research that kind of, there's a little bit with younger than that. And we're starting to do stuff with three and four-year-olds. So we're just on trying to understand what that looks like. But Parents will be able to identify the frustration that children will see there, the pain that the children are in with these things. And of course, that is deeply painful to parents uh, to see a child struggle and to know they're doing a good job. They're doing everything they're supposed to be doing, and yet they're kind of tortured with it. Um, So, I, I mean, I think it can be seen in similar ways. We've certainly seen the traits. We've seen the those self, the interpersonal elements that what we call perfectionistic self-presentation, presenting yourself as part. We've seen that in children. We've seen some of the automatic thoughts, those critical or perfectionistic thoughts that exist as well. So those things seem to be evident, uh, again, in children as young as eight. And, and as I said, there's been research that's been done with, with the measures we've created and, and some other ones, but we're really just beginning to do decent research on, on that issue of how it manifests in children. Okay. And I know parents are also really interested in understanding where perfectionism comes from. And so it seems as though from what you've told us so far, there's probably some kind of genetic component to it that also interacts with some kind of environmental circumstances. Can you help us think through what we understand about that? Well, at this point, with all of this, these are theories of understanding there is no final answer at this point, so it's we don't have the truth yet. We have ideas, uh, and anybody who tells you, oh, this is the way it is, based on science, well, uh, no. Um, <laughs> what, are the, what are the current ideas that you're working with? <laughs> well, the model that we have, again, this came from people, was uh, I have a very a, a psychodynamic or psychoanalytic perspective that I come from. And one of the things that's important from that perspective is trying to get underneath the behaviors that we see in front of us. So trying to get underneath where, what purpose does the perfectionism serve and where might that arise? And based on this perspective, the the idea is it arises 
early in a child's life. Some people actually talk about infants early Mm. in terms of learning about themselves, learning about other people, and learning how to be safe. The idea that we have is that in early relational experiences, infants and children will learn certain things. won't articulate it in in the way that I'm going to describe it, but they'll kind of learn about, can I trust other people? Are other people safe? What do I need to do to feel safe? How do I navigate the world uh, so that I don't have this profound anxiety or fear or other emotions or a sense of being disconnected? And so they learn these sorts of things, of course, usually in relation to the first experience in relation with other people. So a child's job really is to figure out how to navigate the world how to have a sense of navigating the world and feel safe and secure. And a lot of this comes from what we as parents do to teach the child that. So this is what's called an attachment-based approach. And one of the difficulties, one of the criticisms sometimes of an attachment-based approach is people very quickly dismiss it and say, oh, you're just blaming the mother, or you're, yeah. just, you're just finding fault. And the truth of it is, it's, it's not that at all. Absolutely, there are parents who are incredibly abusive and very hurtful. And what we found is that if anything bad or negative is going on in the family, it predicts children developing perfectionism. But there can be instances where a child will have certain needs, a need to feel like they fit, they belong, they are loved, they are lovable, which is a very different thing, and that they are safe. Uh, and so they learn how to navigate that. So how, what do I do in order to, to just have this sense of safety and security? And as parents, I've got four children. Absolutely, we try our best. Every moment, every decision we make has our best interests, have the children's best interests at heart. But we are human. We miss. We have demands, et cetera, et cetera. We cannot be perfect parents. So we miss sometimes. Now, generally, because, I mean, the one thing I teach parents is one of the most important things to kind of reiterate with your children again and again, not just saying the words, but demonstrating it, is that they are cherished and they are loved. Mm. For who they are, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Simply because they exist in the world. Absolutely. And that they matter to you, whoever they are. You know, there's this notion that if as parents, we just provided everything the child needs to grow, uh, the love, the caring, the support, the food, the shelter, the safety, all of that, and let them find their way, they would find their way. But too often, uh, we are directing, we're like, we have to do, you know, look both ways before we have to direct certain things that way. (laughs) But if we allow them to kind of develop a sense that they can look internally to guide their behavior, they just kind of grow. And everything else kind of sends a message to the child. So overprotective parents, for example, uh, absolutely are trying to create a safe environment. They don't want their children hurt. And that's lovely. Except the message often is, 
you don't know what you're doing, you can't trust yourself, you have to have some external entity control you, determine where you go, determine what's safe for you. And so the child never learns a sense of inner directedness, autonomy, or that intrinsic drive, or to trust, especially to trust that intrinsic drive. So a child will learn to look to the external world for how to do So it's those sorts of characteristics where we kind of, a child can learn that they don't have worth, uh, and it, it may not be taught to them directly, but somehow they learn it, they come to understand it, or they come to understand the only way to feel safe and secure is by being perfect, or convincing other people I'm perfect, or the only way to... Well, really, it's about safety and security. The only way to kind of navigate this world and to correct what's wrong with me is if I'm perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it seems as though it's a lot about fit between the parent and the child, because a lot of parents will say, well, my other kid isn't like this at all, and they live in the same house, and (laughs) so what's the deal? But it seems as though the interaction of the parents, you know, expression of love and, and maybe some control and all the other things, and the way that that specifically interacts with that individual child's needs is kind of what sets this up, right? You're absolutely right. It's about fit. Okay. And that's a really nice way to, to frame that. It's also about timing because, mm. you know, you have different needs at different times. Yeah. Uh, children have different needs. Let me, let me give you an example of a patient who developed really severe perfectionism that was debilitating for her. And she came to see me when she was about 40 years of age and had a lifetime of just sort of torture. She grew up in a, in a family that was an immigrant family. And when she was five... Something was happening in her family. She doesn't quite know what it was, but it was like some tragedy or some some really stressful event. And the mother and father decided that the most loving thing they could do was to send their daughter with family members who love her, who would look after her while they deal with whatever horrific thing was going on. whatever tragedy was kind of happening in the family, their daughter would be safe. She's with loved ones. They would, and that's a very loving thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The girl did not, of course, perceive that or understand that as loving. Think a five-year-old. Okay, no, I was sent away. Mom and dad yeah. aren't here. Uh, they don't want me anymore. <laughs> they don't want me anymore. I'm not, I don't matter to them. I'm not important. I'm not good enough. And, uh, you know, it's kind of heart-wrenching when you, whenever I tell this story. And she remembers incidents. When, when she first told me this, she never had any connection that this was an important event in her life. But it was pivotal for the development of perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she remembers incidents of, you know, crying and, and not knowing what she did, blah, blah, blah. An incident of when she saw her mom coming to pick her up. So she was at the airport, and at that time, you can... You could look through the windows and see people deplaning. And she remembers watching her mother deplane to come get her and how beautiful she looked. And it was after that time that she became the absolute perfect daughter, perfect student, perfect sibling. I uh, did absolutely have never created a ripple. Importantly, the mother was a nurse. She became a nurse. The mother worked in a geriatric unit. She became a geriatric nurse. Uh, She arranged things so that she worked on the same ward as the mother, the same shift as the mother. 
when she got to be in high school and met a man and they decided that they were going to live together before they got married. They lived in the mother's house. When they decided they needed to move out, they moved downstairs into an apartment in the mother's house. When they bought their own home, it was two doors down from the mother's house. And all of this sort of illustrates that when people ask me what perfectionism is, I usually say it's a way of being in the world. Yeah. And here you see how she was the perfect daughter, doing the perfect thing, ensuring in every way she's never going to be separated. Yeah. The problems came when the mother died of cancer. For 16 years, this woman was absolutely devastated with grief over this. And people couldn't understand why she was so devastated until we did this kind of work. Mm -hmm. So here you have this a very long-winded story, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a way of, of saying to parents, you know, we do these loving things. We do the best we can. There's nothing wrong with us. And yet our kids can somehow... It's like you, you, you look after your child every day and you say, the child says, I'm just going out in the backyard and they fall and they break their arm. Well, stuff happens. <laughs> and we do the best we can. Um, yeah. So it's a way to try to say, this is not about blaming the parents. It's not about bad. There are bad parents and absolutely they create problems. Mm -hmm. But for the majority of people, no, they're not. Um, yeah. So that's kind of from our perspective where it comes from. Okay. And and it also leads us really nicely into uh, the next question on how to treat perfectionism. Because, I mean, the story that you walk through makes it so clear that so many of the traditional treatments that we use for this kind of disorder focus on changing the symptoms. <laughs> that if the behavior is gone, then the problem is gone. <laughs> so can you help us to understand some of the things that we know about treatments that and whether the treatments quotes work or it don't work <laughs> oh sure yeah absolutely actually i'd love to do a podcast on what you just said and how we got mm -hmm. to this place where somehow treating symptoms is the norm and we're supposed yeah, to all be okay that no, drives me insane as well so the question was how do we treat <laughs> okay let me tell you Stop just treating the symptoms <laughs> a lot of treatments are focused on symptoms yeah. Uh, a lot of treatments, there, there, I mean, there's treatment work that's been done on perfectionism. There's been different treatments that have been developed. And a lot of them really take a symptom-based approach. And it's not that symptoms are unimportant, but there's a reason symptoms exist. Symptoms are there to communicate to you mm -hmm. there's something wrong. So when you have excruciating pain in your knee, Hopefully, when you go to the emergency room, they don't just give you painkillers, that somebody actually pokes around and tries to figure out what's wrong with your knee that you're experiencing pain, mm -hmm. and that they actually figure out, okay, we need to, and lo and behold, if you actually treat what's wrong with your knee, the pain goes away. The mm -hmm. symptoms go away. And so psychiatric, psychological symptoms uh, from a psychodynamic and psychoanalytic, that's kind of the idea. You need to get underneath and figure out what's wrong and treat that. And from my perspective, the treatment that I've been doing for 35 years, and we've been doing research on, does that. It tries to get at, it tries to get at the perfectionism and what's underneath the perfectionism. So the 
anxiety goes away, the depression goes away, the eating disorders, the suicidal tendencies, the physical problems, the stress responses, blah, 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 you know, on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. Um, And you deal with those issues underneath. So when I was talking about the development, that's where we spend a great deal of time is to try to help the person understand the relationship with others and the relationship with self. Most particularly, if I had to just narrow it right down, it would be about working on the relationship the person has with themselves. That somewhere along the line, they learn, I am defective, I am flawed, I'm not good enough, I'm not acceptable, people don't love me, I am not lovable. And they then become perfectionistic to try to correct that. And so we work with that whole element of, well, where did you learn that? How did you get there? How, you know, how did you deal with that? And it tends to be a very emotional kind of treatment. And we get to work very deeply with people. And we've actually found some very, very good results with that kind of treatment as we find results with there's a quite a huge literature on on the effectiveness of psychodynamic and psychoanalytic treatments that people often don't hear about and don't know about it's absolutely there but that's kind of what we do with the treatment with kids we're just starting that so i just have a really large project we're doing trying to figure out one the best way to try to assess and get a sense of what the perfectionism is for each child and then how to deal with how the child has learned this sense of themselves being flawed and defective how they've learned that they're perfect it has the promise of fixing everything and then how do we help them kind of realign it so that they're doing other things to try to meet those needs okay it's it's a vague description unfortunately but (laughs) so it it seems as though a lot of it's focused on gaining insight into the causes of of the things that you're experiencing um where did i where did i first learn that this was something that i needed to do do you ever use more experiential kinds of learning or maybe that's exactly what it is Oh, it is. It's okay. experiential. I, I, okay. I liken this kind of like uh, psychotherapy to learning to ride a bike. If you've never mm-hmm. ridden a bicycle, you can get uh, Lance Armstrong to come and do <laughs> an, a workshop and give you mm-hmm. an eight-hour lecture. And you can take mm-hmm. notes. You can learn everything about which muscle, yeah. how to do the X, Y, and Z. Write a multiple-choice exam, get 100% on it, <laughs> and think, Great, I'm ready to go. Get on the bike. I understand this. And crash. So psychotherapy is not about learning information or learning about thinking differently. It's not as simple about that. It's about, I mean, we can extend the metaphor. If you think how you learned how to ride a bike, you had somebody who cared about you stick you on the two-wheeler, hold on to it, and then kind of keep you back while you tried it and then wobbled, maybe fell, got back up, tried it, you were afraid, you went through, and then the person helping you slowly kind of extracted themselves from it while you learned experientially how to ride a bike. And then it just got really complicated because now you can balance. All, now you got to watch for traffic. You got to watch stop sign, blah, 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 blah. And mm-hmm. then when you do all that, eventually you get to a place, experience the joy 
of riding a bike that's you don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. That's what psychotherapy is about. Okay. And one thing I was thinking about as I was thinking that about this and then tying it back to what kind of what we talked about earlier, how this is really stable and um, it's it's been a part of the person's life for a long time. It almost seems as though we're trying to change something that's really a core component of an individual's personality. Is it exceptionally difficult or is it, I mean, even something we should be doing? <laughs> uh, well, we don't make new people. The way I describe it is we would never take away who the person is. We would never take away the importance of doing things. What we're trying to do is just give people the means um, to be able to go through life and not have that sharp edge, Mm. edge of when I do things, I'm not good enough. I'm Mm -hmm. never good enough. I'm not going to, you know, take that piece away. So mm-hmm. in some ways, yeah, it's getting into fundamental things that are changed. And indeed, we do see quite significant change in the traits and the self-presentational facets. But most especially, what I'm excited about is that change in that relationship with the self, where people mm-hmm. become more accepting of themselves and more trusting mm-hmm. of themselves, because they're often not guided by anything intrinsic. They look to the external world for how to be, and they're never mm. good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, in making fundamentally deep changes, you have to know what you're doing. I'll say that. I mean, that's what—that's one of the things that's important about psychotherapy is it's not an easy thing to do. It's not a trivial thing to do. Sometimes people trivialize it and say, oh, well, you're just saying words. You're just talking to people, mm-hmm. so you can't do any harm. Oh, yeah, right. uh, you can mm-hmm. do harm. <laughs> uh, and so that's why there's a lot of training so that goes into both the degrees and the professions before you start taking on treatment of this kind and Mm -hmm. and this treatment is difficult okay and so for everybody therapist yeah for the therapist and the patient yeah it's just painful i can imagine yeah and so we've focused then on treating people who have received a clinical diagnosis but I think a lot of parents who are looking at this in their children are wondering, well, firstly, how do I even know that I need a clinical diagnosis? Of, and of perfectionism, it, you mean? Yeah. Um, First off, it's not a diagnosis. Okay. It's, Thank you for that question. It, it's, <laughs> no, really what it is, is it's a fundamental core personality vulnerability factor. Mm. It's just, it's a personality characteristic i've been asked okay. many times hey you should put that in the dsm you should make those up and i'll say mm-hmm. no uh mm-hmm. it's i the last thing i want to do is start thinking about or have people think about it as a diagnosis it's mm-hmm. this way of being it's this multi-layered multi-level kind of thing so you don't you don't i mean it's like anything for psychotherapy you, you don't need a diagnosis in order to to enter a process whereby you're going to be relieved of pain, you're going to grow personally, you're going to enhance relationships. And by the way, symptoms might go away, Mm -hmm. usually do go away. But it's always about growth. uh, And it's about, um, it's almost like a gift to yourself. I mean, uh, that's the way I see psychotherapy. So for parents, what I would say, when do you want to get a professional involved? When you see your child, 
consistently experiencing pain and torment. And the best way to measure that is how much pain and torment do you have watching your child engage in that? And then I would find somebody who can be uh, helping. I just recommend help for people, if, you know, if uh, you're in the States, so if you can afford it or if you have insurance that covers it or if there's ways, that's, <laughs> that's part of the problem, part of the issue. Um, yeah. But, you know, I do a lot of training of clinicians. I do a lot of supervision of clinicians in different parts of the world who are working with perfectionistic patients. And we're doing more and more training in this model. I mean, I'm a, people can email me and I can try to connect them. There's not a lot uh -huh. of people out there. I'm happy to, to, I've been doing that for years anyway. People send me emails and ask for help in a variety of ways. Okay, that's very generous of you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I hope your inbox doesn't get flooded. Um, and, and yeah, of course, when you said no diagnosis, my brain immediately goes to, well, how then how does insurance pay for it? And <laughs> uh, well, you're in Canada, you don't have that problem. <laughs> well, there is no diagnosis of perfectionism, though. Yeah, yeah. So maybe it has to be a diagnosis well, of anxiety or something. You can yeah. focus on the symptoms and there will be a diagnosis. Uh, from if it's not depression, it could be adjustment disorder or yeah. relational problem. It, there's a way to do it. The clinician will, your clinician should know how to navigate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wonder if we can talk through a couple of specific examples that parents had sent to me, um, because the parent who got me started on this whole thing in the first place uh, said she she looks back and she sees how things came really easily to her daughter when her daughter was in preschool. But now when her daughter's in elementary school, she'll do math problems as long as she's sailing along. There's no problem at all. If she doesn't have to read the instructions, she just kind of does it. Mm. You know, I know, I know how to do this. That's fine. The most moment that she doesn't already know how to do something, then she just refuses to be shown how. She's, but she's also really upset by not knowing the thing. Sure. So if she's doing her schoolwork on the computer and she gets an answer wrong, if she's not too far into the test, she'll actually scrap the whole test and start over again sure. rather than having a wrong answer. And so the parent has tried to talk with her daughter about what it would mean to get one answer wrong and how many things children do get wrong and how many wrong answers is okay from the teacher's perspective. But the child just doesn't want to hear doesn't it. Want to go there. And the parent's yeah. wanting to know, well, do I back off completely? What does this mean for schoolwork? And kind of more generally, what should we do when our children just give up when they aren't successful with a task? Well, one of the ways to think about it is what is driving the giving up? Like what's mm. driving the upset and the anger when it doesn't know the instructions? Because it's there for a reason and it's yeah. upset for a reason. So this is this notion trying to get underneath it right. to try to find out what the child's the, the little girl or the little boy is actually struggling mm -hmm. with in those moments. And that's not necessarily, they're not going to answer you because they may not yeah. be able to articulate it. So, I, I mean, from a parent perspective, again, I always come back to the loving support and the help. And, you know, in one of the studies, we have an 11 year old girl who it just starts to talk a little bit about that. It's, absolutely heart-wrenching because you see how much pain she was in when she wasn't able to do very well. So, so you can really see the pain that they're in. So we want to try to find out what that is. So how do you do that if they can't tell you? Well, yeah, that's where you work with a professional. I, th I think that would be something that would be helpful. And it doesn't, 
mean years of therapy or anything like that. <laughs> it can be trying to foster a relationship some, such that this young person can feel safe enough to take the risk hmm. to talk about whatever that might be. Okay. Because there's something, there's a reason for it. There's something yeah. there. And it doesn't want to talk about it. There's a reason that she doesn't or he doesn't want to talk about it. And mm -hmm. so it's to try to help them articulate because it's you're working really blindly if you don't know what, what the issue is. Now, for parents, mm -hmm. it can be uh, loving support and, you know, comfort and soothing uh, as much as you can. And in that case, I would try to get a consultation to see if there's somebody that can form a connection. And there are some incredibly gifted child therapists who just have this ability to bang, get right in there and form a connection. Mm -hmm. Might take a little bit of digging, but to find yeah. to, to find a person like that. But absolutely. Okay. That's super helpful. And then another parent that I work with has um, what she describes as a perfectionist, anxious six-year-old who can't stand to lose a game. If they're playing a game and he loses, there's this massive meltdown. He's He always sets up the rules so that they're modified so that he either always wins or at least there's a tie. <laughs> so uh, the parent's wondering, should I continue to allow these rule modifications to avoid the meltdown in the short term? <laughs> or does the child need to learn? at some point that you can't always win in life and macro to that is is there a connection between perfectionism and competitiveness oh yeah absolutely there's a, a connection between perfectionism and competitiveness but again with the little boy i would be one i would be interested in trying to find out on a level what it means when he doesn't win when it doesn't lose mm -hmm. but most particular what it means about him and who he mm -hmm. is so that's mm -hmm. the work that a therapist would do in there i think i mean you said something really wise there about life is about failures and when you when you talk to people and most of us by far the majority of us have had some pretty horrific things happen in our lives that we have somehow had to find a way to navigate through and very, very often, and especially when I work with people with PTSD, we get to a point and they would, they'll say, I wouldn't have wished that on my worst enemy, mm -hmm. but am I ever glad it happened? Mm -hmm. Because there's growth, there's a sense of identity, there's a sense of autonomy, there's a sense of what I can do. Just a, it can be quite remarkable. When you are when parents are overprotective, I'm sure you've had a podcast on overprotective parenting and yep. the problems, um, yep. I assumed you would have, uh, the problems <laughs> that come from that. If you think yeah. about what, what, what does the child learn about him or herself? Oh, I can't do things. Mm -hmm. I can't navigate the world myself. I need somebody mm -hmm. else to do it for me. I'm not smart at all, smart enough capable enough. I don't know how to do this. I can't trust myself to make judgments about anything because I will be hurt. I need somebody else there. And absolutely want to keep our children safe, but we also want them to fall down. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, we, we want them to have to struggle through some things. Yeah. We can support them and care for them. We don't do their homework because it's the struggle that's the important piece. It's not getting the homework done. It's figuring out a way to struggle through this really, really difficult task and come out the other end and be able to say, 
wow, that was really hard, but I, I did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems as though, I mean, I think a lot of parents are concerned with this idea of, you know, I, I want to set high standards and I, sure. I want my children to strive for excellence and, and to, to try and achieve things that they find difficult and balancing that with somebody who feels like, well, I, I can't fail. <laughs> um, seems as though it should be or could be difficult, but maybe the answer is that that it's it's a struggle and, and that, that is that they're figuring out the struggle is the work of our lives, really. Yeah. And the struggle is also trying to figure out how each of us is going to do the task of living our life, mm-hmm. not trying to figure out what the formula is or what everybody else needs me to do. It's for yeah. me. To, and that's that's a really difficult thing. And if you have a basis where you can't trust yourself, you don't you can't trust that intrinsic drive. You're you're at a loss. And uh, probably the feeling that I hear most often initially with people with perfectionism is that they feel lost. I, I'm just mm-hmm. lost in the world. I, I, I don't know where to go. I don't know mm-hmm. who I am. Uh, mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of things. And they've been that way for a long time, often okay. into childhood. And to conclude on a slightly mm-hmm. more positive note, uh, how do they then feel after <laughs> support from uh, well, appropriate professionals? Well, I'll, I mean, I continue to do this work because I love doing clinical work. I, although I'm a researcher and I'm probably knowing more from my research than anything else, mm-hmm. it's the clinical work that's working with people. I continue mm-hmm. to do it. I get lots of people. The woman that I talked to you about at five years old, yeah. It's been 25 years since I finished working with her. We worked together for about three years, which is longer than often I work with people with perfectionism. Every year at Christmas, I get a card that talks yeah. because she, she was extremely suicidal and yeah. was ready to uh, absolutely end her life. And she sends me a card every Christmas just to say another Christmas okay. with my family. And yeah, still here. Now, that's anecdotal. I continue to do this work because I believe it's helpful. People continue to come to see me because it seems to be helpful. People, students from all over the world come to be trained in this because it seems to be helpful. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a debilitating thing that controls the rest of your life. No, and that's such a painful prospect to think about people having to suffer with that. It's daunting. I guess that's not a positive well, note, is it? Not also, no, but well, <laughs> the last word was not positive, but I think the overall idea goes where we needed to go. Yeah. So thank you so much. That was amazingly uh, helpful. And I think parents are going to come out of this with a lot of hope that this doesn't have to be something that's going to take over my child's life and that there are places that I can go, go to to get help if it seems as though it is, it is becoming uh, detrimental. I would also guess that many parents will say, oh, that sounds familiar um, <laughs> and relate aspects of this too, because it, that always yeah. happens. And it's just, it's sometimes helpful for people to hear, okay, well, one, you're not alone. Uh, yeah. And two, there's often a lot of pain that's kind of connected with these things. So, Yeah. And, and three, if you wanted to explore it and, and potentially do something about it, there may be effective things that you can do. Yes, so. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Don't forget to subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com to receive new episode notifications and the free guide to seven parenting myths that we can leave behind. 
and join the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group for more respectful research-based ideas to help kids thrive and make parenting easier for you. I'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.